Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the big storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, May 16th. So much for us to discuss this week here at Crack Rackets. Of course, on the college tennis front, it's time for the NCAA quarterfinals to begin. Time for all of the teams still remaining in the Division I NCAA season to descend upon Champaign for the final weekend of the 2022 college tennis season. Of course, we will be previewing all of that action this week on our Great Shot Podcast episodes of The Deciding Point, as we always do. And I am sure many of you listeners expected me to come on this podcast today and celebrate the fact that my University of Michigan Wolverines reached their first men's quarterfinals since 1988. My coach growing up, Ed Nagel, was a member of that 1988 team. Perhaps I do what I do because I grew up on stories, hearing about that squad, and now I get to see this year's team compete in Champaign, and I am so excited to be able to say I will be traveling to Champaign to cover all of the action. I will be on the broadcast for the semifinals onward for the team event. Again, very excited for this weekend's action. We'll be talking about all of that, though, this week on the Great Shot podcast feed. Here on the mini break, we have to turn our attention towards the 2022 
French Open. That's right, folks. The start date of the year's second Grand Slam. Less than one week away. And as crazy as that is to say out loud, it means it's time for us to preview the year's second Grand Slam here at Cracked Rackets. Do what we always do. Talk about the men's and women's singles contenders, the dark horses, the Americans break down the draws, offer our predictions. It's going to be a busy week here at Cracked Rackets. And of course, we are excited to have all of that content for all of you listeners over the next few days. But look, if you're going to be talking about all of those things, if you're going to try and sneak in a breakdown of last week's action in Rome, Novak Djokovic, Iga Svantec looking very much the part of world number ones on their way to the titles, you better have some help along the way. We have a jam-packed week of guests here at Crack Rackets, and I could think of no better guests to start with than a man who has probably descended beyond just being known as a guest, essentially a co-host here of the Mini Break Podcast feed a man you know best as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com for tennis channel it is our friend and returning champion david kane joining us here on today's show to talk about both rome and the men's dark horses david welcome back to the show how are you doing today my friend Alex, I am so happy to be here. And as evidence of how firmly ensconced I have become in the Crack Rackets universe, Alex threw some college tennis trivia at me, thought he was going to trip me up when it came time to hit record. But I know the answer to his question. and I'm really excited to share it with all of you. And I feel like you did this unintentionally, but David rocking a maize-colored shirt. I'm going to say that's in honor of my University of Michigan Wolverines, who, of course, again, advanced to their first men's quarterfinal of the team tournament since 1988. The number one singles player in that 1988 team lineup was Dan Goldberg, the 87 NCAA singles finalist, number two singles player, a man by the name of Ed Nagel, who is my coach. Growing up, the number three singles player, this was my trivia question to David, a former Wimbledon men's singles finalist. David, can you name that player? I will admit that hint did help me over the finish line, but the answer nonetheless is Mal via Washington. That is correct. West, I'll give him an applause. David comes in hot here on today's show. That's why I asked the question for the record, because I knew you were going to get the answer. He's a pretty prominent former college tennis ATP star. There's just not that many who go on to make, uh, certainly in this era, singles finals at Grand Slams. And so, yeah, again, shout out to Mal Washington, who played doubles with Ed Nagel. And we had him on the podcast, I want to say, two years ago. And you should all go listen to that podcast because I asked him about what happened at Denny's after they won the 1988 Big Ten Championship, to which he goes, how do you know that story? And then I got to, I had to, he goes, I know who your source is now. And I was like, oh, yep, it, it's the giveaway. Uh, but you can go hear that podcast on the Cracked Interviews podcast. It was great to have him on. Hopefully we get some former Wolverines in Champagne. This former Wolverine is planning on being there. But enough about the college tennis. I'll talk about all of that again on this week's episode of The Deciding Point. We want to talk about Rome here at the start of today's show. Breakdown, just another dominant performance from Iga Sviantek. And of course, we'll talk a lot about Iga throughout the course of this week. But always got to check in on David's pulse uh, where uh, – 
where he stands right now with all things ego. We'll talk about some of the other takeaways from Rome, the ascending own Jabour as well. And then we want to talk about the men's side, certainly get into a Novak Djokovic title run. How close to inform is he entering the action in Paris? Talk about the other takeaways, Tsitsipas versus Zverev, take a million and, you know, all the other matches that unfolded over the past few days. And then we'll get into our Roland Garros preview. And again, all of our Roland Garros previews this week here on the Mini Break podcast feed. We're focusing on the college stuff. Great shot podcast. Roland Garros here on the Mini Break. The reason we're able to do it all, because of the support we get from our friends over at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Treat yourself. You've earned it. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, David, with that in mind, let's start with Iga. I mean, we've talked about her a lot. It feels like every week, you know, prior to Ashley Barty's retirement, it was who can challenge Ashley Barty. And well, it's probably Iga. Then Barty retires and Iga goes on to just not lose a match. And for Iga Sviantek last week in Rome, again, another dominant performance on her way to the title. Iga Sviantek does not drop a set. 3-0 over Rusev. 4-1 over Vika. 6-0 over Bianca Andreescu. 2-1 over Sabalenka. Then maybe most impressive of them all, a 2-2 victory over an own Jabour who had won what? 12 matches, whatever it was, going into that Rome final, some sort of double-digit number. We had two double-digit win streaks going into the final. It did not matter. Iga Sviantek continues her dominant form here in 2022. You look now for the world number one. 20-year-old is now a ridiculous 37-3. 37-3, David, overall on the year. Has not lost since February when she lost a 7-6 in the third match to Yelena Ostapenko. I mean, everything looks better, David. It's just the ferocity of her footwork. If you hang a ball, she's going to run around the ball. She's going to hit a plus-one forehand. She's going to make you pay. She can move that plus-one forehand any direction she'd want, inside out, heavy cross-court. Her ability to hit the -the on-the-slide backhand on these clay courts, it's just ridiculous, her ability to absorb pace on that side. And then she's a comfortable volleyer. She serves better and better with every match performance we see. And you look for Iga Sviantek now this season. She's up to third in hold percentage overall amongst WTA top uh, 50 players. Of course, she's number one in break percentage, breaking serve 56% of the time through 40 matches. Through 40 matches, David, she is breaking over half the time on serve. That's not good. That's not great. That's dominant. We started this season asking, is there a dominant world number one? There's an unequivocal answer. It's yes, and it's Iga Sviantek. First of all, I was going to ask you what you thought was smoother, Iga Sviantek's game or your transitions in and out of those ad breaks? Because I have to say that was pretty impressive. It was maybe the Iga Sviantek of ad transitions. But with that said, I think it's interesting that you finish off with the stat breakdown and where Iga falls in terms of breakpoint conversion, service holds. And we were comparing those statistics to Ash Barty. And while Ash Barty was the best of the rest, sort of at the start of the year, these are some real scintillating numbers from Sviantek. She is far and away the best of the field in a field that is in many ways slowly encroaching and getting closer. I think they are closer to Barty than they are to Sviatek. 
unfortunately Barty's no longer playing and she's not the number one anymore, but I think um, it's, it's been a tougher field that Svantec has been contending with. And she has nonetheless been blowing them all away, playing some really high quality players to win these titles and doing so with tremendous ease. And you just look at the way Svantec takes the court you know, it's a really trite, overused question, but how do you beat her? She's someone who really defies the dimensions of the tennis court with her spin. The spin allows her to play with impeccable margin. She's a phenomenal athlete. She covers the, the covers the, um, the back of the court extremely well. She's a smart player. She's incredibly tenacious. She's got some great competitive spirit. She's got a good team managing her, pulled her out of Madrid so that she'd be prepped for Rome and, you know, on playing in conditions that are as similar to Roland Garros as you're going to get in the run-up to the French Open. And so there's really just no notes for Iga Svantec right now. She's playing at a different level. And this is sort of, you know, I think this is, it's a good answer to the question I was asking at the beginning of the year when we were talking about where Barty fit in the conversation of dominant number ones, of unequivocal number ones. This is how it's done. And so I have to tip my hat to her because she's really just setting the standard in a way that we have not seen I hate to say it, since Serena. Well, it goes even beyond that. And, I mean, to your point, I do think that's a fair litmus test of we haven't seen it since. But you look at, again, breaking down the field that she has faced. Since going, you know, within this 28-match win streak that she's on, it's not as though it's been a cupcake schedule. She's 7-0 and against top 10 players. But, again, quick math for all of you. Seven of her 28 wins are coming against top 10 opponents. That's a quarter of her matches. She's playing the top 10. She's beating the top 10. She hasn't dropped a set to a top 10 opponent during that span of time. The closest set she's played, 6-4 against Sakari, that first set Indian Wells final, 6-4 first set Sakari in Doha as well. I mean, obviously she's undefeated in this stretch of time, but 11 of the 28 victories against top 20 opponents as well. And just, you know, uh, during the pandemic, we were all bored and I was looking for the best three-year primes, five-year primes, single seasons, and the, the sort of top 20 win counts and top 10 win counts you begin to accumulate when you're on a pace, and you, again, we are now not quite halfway to the season, but inching closer and closer to it, if you're putting up a 10 win, you know, 10 or more top 10 wins, that's, a, that's an elite season of all time. If you're approaching 15 or that ultimate magical number of 20, now you're talking Serena, Graf, Everett, Navratilova, and Early Sellis. That's it. That's the group who gets to 20 top 10 wins in a single season. 37-3 and overall. She has now won for the year 93% of her matches. Again, Everett, Graf, Serena, Navratilova, and Early Sellis. That's the group she's sniffing in right now. And we are not just one month into this season. We are now through everything in the clay court. Yeah, we get, we have events this week, and let's not sleep on the what Krejcikova did last week. I swear to God, David, I'm ready to fire off a if Garbine Muguruza wins the title this week, she's going to end up winning the French Open take. That's just would be mwah, just a, a nice little steamy steamy take for you to start the French Open. I will uh, exit the podcast if you make that take, but go ahead. <laughs> Good. The point being, not, again, I, I talked about this at the time when we did those podcasts. And when Radakanu won her U.S. Open and we were looking at the success of players before they turned 21, even prior to the start of this season, 
Iga Swiatek wasn't on the Celis level. She wasn't on the Hingis level. She wasn't even at the Serena or Sharapova winning 80 to 85% of her matches, but, you know, competing in multiple slam finals and winning a slam title. But she was just the tier below them. Now, with this result, and again, we're still very early in her career, but let's be clear. She turns 21 at the end of this month. She is still extraordinarily young. She is now on the pace. We joke about it with Alcaraz. Well, she is 21 years old, even further along, and she is on that pace. She is in that sort of special territory. And again, that's what the numbers say. To get back to the eye test, Owen Shabur from 1-4 down in that second set or whatever it was, played some of the most, or maybe it was even 4-0 down, played just exceptional tennis. Started taking returns on the rise, started mixing in the drop shots, started moving forward, putting all sorts of pressure on Iga Swiatek. She had breakpoint opportunities to get back on serve in that second set. It didn't matter. Iga, to your point, just the, no discernible weakness, she was able to turn defense into offense. She was able to dip passing shots low enough at own Jabour's feet that even though Jabour was pressing forward, Jabour would hang the first volley. And you can't give Iga Svantec a look at a second passing shot because if she do, she's going to make you pay. She's too quick. She's too effective on the run. I actually, again, the closest, and obviously if it was a 7-6 scoreline in that first set, Andrescu's ability to get pace and depth routinely to that Sviantec forehand, that was interesting. But outside of, but even then, you know, again, with the physicality Iga brings as well, BB wasn't able to match that. So it's just, and once that physical, you know, once BB began to worn down, now we're back into plus one territory. Now she's moving the forehand around or going with the, you know, she hits this ridiculous short angle plus one backhand winner where it's just like you can hit that ball cross court comfortably. That's just how you know you're on another planet. Iga can do everything right now. And I don't, I, I know we get hesitant in terms of hyping these players. I'm not saying she's going to finish in the Navratilova, Everett, Sellis, Williams. I know I forgot to name their category a graph, but that is the pace she's on right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you talk about Andreescu and we look at who is that potential next rivalry. I do think if Bianca can stay healthy, she is that kind of complete player who can challenge um, Iga off the ground because of her because of her pace, because of her own athleticism and her own tenacious competitive spirit. She does match up um, on a lot of the X's and O's for for Iga's game. I think when we talk about how do you beat Svantec, I think we saw with the Rome final, the, the answer to the question, how do you beat on Shabor and as many matches as she's been able to string together. I think if you play sort of relentless, consistent tennis and you keep asking questions of Shabor, you do get the answer eventually. I think that, you know, Shabor has been really phenomenal the last two weeks winning Madrid and Rome, but I think ultimately she ran into a better opponent, you know, in the final. And I think that's, that's sort of been her issue in finals for the most part in her career, but still the fact that she was able to string together the most consistent run of her life. I mean, it really does answer. It really does put her chances of winning the French open in perspective because her biggest drawback as a player all these all these years has been whether she can win seven matches in a row and she comes into the French Open knowing hey I can win 10 plus so this is nothing and I'll have days off in between so I think those two have to be my top two contenders heading into the French Open but at the same time looking at, at how Andreescu is slowly rounding into form I got to think that she's one of the uh, the primo dark horses not to steal the thunder of whomever is so lucky to grab that topic <laughs> previewing Roland Garros well is Jabour I mean is Jabour a dark horse like 
Is anyone but Ika not a dark horse at this point? I know this is sort of stepping onto that podcast, but watching Jabour throughout the course of the week, and you know, obviously for own Jabour, three set victory for her over Kasakina in the semifinals, three set victory for her over Sakari in the quarterfinals, and you know, the straight set victory for her over Putenseva, probably her most impressive victory of the week. I mean, like, I guess, I guess. She probably has to be considered, but you know that second tier of like caliber player. I, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, Iga's on a tier on her own, isn't she? I mean, she is. I would say she is the number one favorite, and there is a decent amount of space between her and Shabor as the number two. But at the same time, we look at where we were this time last year, and Iga was very much on track to win that French Open last year. She was undefeated in Rome and going into the French Open quarterfinals, and then the quarterfinals happen and she loses to Sakari and all of a sudden the draw turns upside down. So I think you can't discount grand slam pressure. I think she's definitely on another level this year than she was last year, but at the same time, that's the kind of circumstance that someone like Jabor with all of her confidence can, can take advantage of. We've seen her play a lot of really phenomenally, um, really phenomenally well battled matches where she's bombed second sets and come back like nothing happened and won the third. She is not, playing different tennis than she was a year ago. She's playing the same tennis, but better. And obviously I think Iga's playing the same tennis, but exponentially better. And that's why she's playing so well. But I think, yeah, those are by far the top two because you look at the rest of the players in the top 10 right now. I mean, Krejcikova, we don't even know if she'll play Roland Garros, although I think she is slated for media day. Bedosa is not near her best. Sakari is notoriously one who underperforms in the later stages of Grand Slam. Sabalenka has her issues. Kontavite, Pliskova, you're, we're running out of top 10 players. So it really is Sakari, Jabor, or Bust. And at the end of the day, there's 128 players in the draw. So I think you still have to give a little bit of edge to the field in the sense that I don't know if Ika's going to steamroll it the way that she did in 2020. But at the same time, if she's going to do it, now is the time. Can I disagree with you slightly? No. Good answer. <laughs> I would. You don't think Sabalenka's on that tier now? Have we not seen enough from Arena, who this week, obviously, uh, fantastic for her. Obviously, the 2-0 win in her first match, but then a you know 1-4 victory over Adjust Pagula, who has been as consistent week in, week out as any player on the WTA Tour. She gets over the Anisimova hunt, three-set victory yeah. in that match, played one bad service game to start the match, and the rest of the way, I thought, had her finest serving performance of the season there. And then just kind of ran into the, you know, the— the blitzkrieg that is Iga Swiatek, and I, you know, you look at the stats from that match in particular for Sabalenka. I thought that on the week, you know, again, it was her worst serving performance from a first serve perspective, and just could not, you know, at a certain point, could not find any rhythm on the first serve. Started just rolling that ball in. The moment you do that, you're dead against Iga. I thought that three set victory. You know, the problem for Sabalenka is, okay, that's one big win for her over Anisimova, or two big wins even in Pagula or Anisimova. You have to have probably three or four of those if you want to make a push to a Grand Slam title run right now in a WTA draw. That said, she got two of them this week. And just, again, mentally, I thought how complete her performance was against Anisimova, how she didn't let any double fault woes. And she was over that 10% double fault threshold for the course of the match. She didn't let that get to her. I thought she moved extraordinarily well in that match. And then she finally said, you know what? I'm done serving to your backhand. I'm just not doing this anymore. And just to see that mentality click in 
again, sometimes I, I, I just think we have seen it now over the course of a couple of weeks for Sabalenka, Stuttgart, Rome. I know she loses that three-set match to Anisimova in Madrid, but I don't think she played particularly poorly in that. I think she's found her form. Like, she is clearly playing the best tennis, and we know she has the sort of FU power to just make a run. No, I agree. I do think even more than the Anisimova win, although that was pretty damn impressive that she finally got that win over Amanda. The fact that she backed it up and then beat Pagula, a match that when I saw it in the draw, I said, oh, Jesse's winning this one. No question. And the fact that Arena came through and won it as convincingly as she did, for sure. I think she's a player who has won, who rather who has learned like a thousand little lessons in 2022. And I think all of those combined will one day lead her to Grand Slam victory. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to happen now. If you're, if you're asking me to pick between Jabor and Sabalenka, I think I would still pick Jabor just because of the momentum and the fact that she has been able to deal with the fact that she has been able to deal with a lot of adversity in a lot of these matches and still string together an 11 match win streak. I think that's we're still seeing Sabalenka, the, the wheels fall off, you know, at, at certain points in tournaments, whether it was the early exit to Anisimova in Madrid, a match that she probably should have walked away with similarly in Charleston. And then just not really having any answers against Svantec in, in Rome. That's that's a rough one because, you know, in order to win the title, she'll probably have to play Iga at some point if Iga's playing as, as well as she's playing. So you would hope based on the way that Sabalenka started the season and or rather the fact that she made two slam semifinals last year, she seemed as close as she is, was going to get to winning a Grand Slam title. It feels like she had her opportunities on clay last year as well. You know, hopefully she comes away from Rome feeling confidence and having learned another lesson about herself, about her tennis, what she's able to do, because again, to your point, that power is, it's, it's something that we've seen it knock out Jabor on grass, no less. So it's certainly nothing to sneeze at. I do feel it'd be more appropriate if in lieu of the number two seed, the Roland Garros and French open draw, you know, ten, French tennis, what's the ter, uh, French tennis federation? FFT, yeah. F, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just went out of their way to say, oh, federation, uh, went out of their way to say, you know, we, you know we're just not going to do a number two through four seed. Like, you're all going to be six seeds. Like, we're just going to have five six seeds. And yeah, because we don't know how to pick. And putting a two next to Maria Sakkari's name just doesn't feel quite right. Right, Bedosa, you're kind of a six as well. Sabalenka, a dangerous six. Shabur at number six feels perfect. Like, and then Kantve, you get a six seed too. It's like, yeah, that would feel more appropriate than to to try and attempt to delineate any of them. And I mean, to your point, I, I, let's assume Krachikova does not play this event, which all signs seem to indicate she will not be. I mean, Sabalenka is going to be your number six seed. And so, again, where she ends up in the draw, I don't. I think it's a toss-up between her and any of the other players in that range that I mentioned. I, I agree with you, and it's a conversation we'll get to more broadly later, but I do think if you're making a tier two, uh, well, a conversation, excuse me, we'll get to on a future preview podcast, but if you're making a tier two, I think Sabalenka has to be in it. I do think she is now playing well enough to belong in that category. I know we didn't talk much about Owens there. We talked about her last week when we spoke. I do just think, and I want to keep emphasizing this point because obviously the variety she brings is impressive as well. I think I like her first step as much as any non-Sviantec player. Just her ability to... Her anticipation skills, her ability to beat you to the spot, take that ball on the rise, her ability to hit the on the rise drop shot is just silly. It's just like, can you imagine how good she must be at ping pong and just taking everything early out in front? I know that's a nerdy thing to say, but that's what I'm thinking when I watch her play because it's just all so condensed. 
And then I really like the way she moves. She picks her spots well. I mean, again, generating her own pace, especially against someone who hits as dynamic of a ball as Iga, that was an issue for her. But she survives in three sets once again, and she's just as confident as anyone. I think she continues to get better. And again, you look from an age perspective, Own Jabour, 27 years old, number six in the world. This is her prime. Like the win- This is her window. Yeah, I think for Jabour, it's the sort of situation where the whole is big, is greater than the sum of its parts. When you look at the individual players that maybe she's beaten to get this win streak together, you think, eh, you know, Ekaterina Alexandrova in the semifinals in Madrid, or even Kasakina, who has not made it that far to big tournament in a very long time and had match point, got very nervous. But at the same time, these are matches that Jabour's mind, body, soul would eventually betray her in a lot of these matches because she just did not seem to have that intangible it as much as she had the raw talent, the raw potential to admit to win these titles and probably the belief in herself when she would step to the line in a lot of these matches, she would just come up just a little bit short. The fact that she's been able to string together two really strong weeks before a major tournament, it's got to do wonders for her confidence. And I think the fact that she's one of those players who gives opponents a very unique ball, you never quite know what you're going to get. And in that arsenal is a tremendous amount of power. I think it's not enough to just be someone with a lot of variety. I think you do need to be able to hit some big shots. And she's one of those players who has that capability. She's going to be so dangerous because she's, unless of course, in this this two weeks, she's managed to pick up an injury, which I don't think she has. She seemed healthy by the end of the week, but that's really the only thing that's ever really stood in her way. Now that the mental um, blocks seem to be well and truly behind her, she can stay physically fit through the two weeks. She'll have those days off. She's definitely my number two pick to win this title because she's based on the way she's played Roman Madrid. So I would push back on the Kasatkina slander is the wrong word. She's been really good since the start of last season. And, you know, she's 18 and 10 overall this year. 56. Not good enough, but go on. <laughs> well, I, disagree. I think she's playing the best tennis of her career. Like, I understand she reached number 10 Ouch. in 2018. You, th- you no, thought I was mean? You thought I was slandering? No, I think the consistency she's shown week in, week out. Again, 56 and 29 since the start of last season. Just listen to who the last group of losses have been to. Obviously, Jabour, three sets in Rome. Three sets to Cerebas, Tormo, Madrid, round of 16. I don't think that's a bad loss. Yeah, that's a match she needs to be winning if you want to be a top 20 player, but certainly not a bad loss in a vacuum. A loss to Jabour in Stuttgart, not a bad loss. You know, Sasnovich, Miami, okay, but Kerber was her loss in Indian Wells, and then Doha, she loses to Sviantec. Dubai, she loses to Sviantec. Australian Open, she loses to Sviantec. Sydney, she loses to Bedosa. Melbourne, she loses to Anisimova. Like, those are the rising stars of the year. I, I To some extent, yeah. yes, I understand you need to beat them to be considered a tier one player. Yeah. But I also think there's something to sustaining yourself as a top 20 sort of player and the difficulties that come with that. And I think for Casacchino, that was the problem early on is we saw the flashes, but it was the consistency week in, week out. And duplicating that consistency is the hardest thing to do. She's done that now. Again, this has been a 16-month stretch where she has been a top 30 player. And at at a certain point, there was concern that her floor was lower than that. I think this is now the established floor. See, I feel the opposite. I feel if anything, she's established a ceiling. <laughs> I think it's a little different because I think that, you know, she's someone, and I think the contrast between her and Sviantec is sort of apt because in many ways, Sviantec is sort of the better version of Kasakina. She has that whippy forehand, that um, clay court aptitude, 
in many ways, Iga is just the better model of what Kasakina brings to the table. And I think that, yes, it's cute to be consistent, but I think at the same time on the WTA tour, if you're a top 30 player, a lot of those top 30 players are either former slam champions, have capabilities to win a slam. And we still have not seen that yet from Kasakina. And we have a lot of years of data points, you know, proving that that perhaps is not the case. She's certainly on the upswing. She had a lot of really rough years after her, uh, her breakthrough in 2016, 2017, some rough ones, some rough losses, you know, I think almost falling out of the top hundred at one point, but, you know, coming back to, to level, certainly a great accomplishment for her. But if you're asking me to handicap her chances of doing better than a quarterfinal in the, at the French open, I would say that's probably where she lands and maybe, and maybe has a really great match in the quarterfinals pushes Iga or arena to three sets. And that would be a great result for her. But I think at the same time, that's about as good as she can hope for right now. Is that a good tweet? Is Iga just Kasakina 2.0? Like, is that something you put to a Twitter poll? Maybe. If this was a live radio show, maybe. But <laughs> unfortunately, by the time we did, no one would understand why. I mean, yeah. I, I would say, again, Kasakina physically just – and again, from a floor perspective, I just think she is such a tough out. She's going to put a lot of pressure on you. Now, you're right. There are players who have more firepower who will be able to hit through her, put her under pressure, keep her 12 feet behind the baseline the whole time. But she's playing well. was another good week for Jill Teichman, who unfortunately has to w- retire at the end of her quarterfinal match. But I thought she played well. I mean, just quickly, which American goes furthest? at the 2022, where American women goes furthest at the 2022 French Open? I mean, it should be Anisimova, but it'll probably be Pagula. Because <laughs> I think that Pagula has proven just more sound, more durable. And I think Anisimova still has hitches and hiccups. I mean, yes, you know, Sabalenka has been very close to beating Amanda, but the fact is that Amanda has been undefeated against her heading into Rome. And that was a big opportunity for Amanda to get a deep results right before the French Open. And that's the one time she loses to Arena. That's like, it feels like some rough serendipity for her. I mean, obviously, Amanda's phenomenal. And I think she's probably the more naturally talented and maybe more naturally just built for all of this, that being women's tennis. But I think for some reason, and, you know, in an ironic twist, Pagula's sort of laid back approach and just sort of cleaner technique off both wings. I think it's winning the day so far for her. So I, I think ultimately, I think it will be Pagula. But Anisimova certainly has a lot more, she has the capability to go farther but I think ultimately Pagula will go farthest of the two. Yeah, I I, I would – see, I disagree. I'm just going to go with Anisimova. I, I think she's playing lights out. I think you need to have the firepower to match her to beat her because yeah, – I would like it to time. be true, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting element. It's overdue. I, I mean I, she's just playing so extraordinarily well right now, and you're right. She can – her floor in a single match is – Absolutely lower than it, than Jessica Pagula's. There are times when Anisimova just is misfiring, and again, it's a little bit one speed for Anisimova at times. But her ability to find ways to continue to pressure Sabalenka throughout the course of that match, and just how confident she is on serve, and you know she does move a little bit better, I think, on the clay courts as well. I think she's playing well. I think that was one of the noticeable takeaways. But again, we're going to talk about the top contenders. We'll talk about, if not Iga, who, all of these different questions later on in the week here on the mini break as well. With that in mind, let's move over to Rome and let's blend this into our conversation here about the men's dark horses entering the 2022 French Open. And again, when we have these dark horse conversations, you listeners know we like to break it down by category and 
that's what David and I did. We want to talk about, obviously, what constitutes a dark horse this season. But then we want to talk about two top 20 players who we believe can win the tournament. And when we say two top 20 players, we mean not – we'll get into the context of this, but not Djokovic, not Nadal. Not a guy like Carlos Alcaraz, who everyone has in that conversation as well. If not that clear-cut group, you know, who else could actually win this tournament? We want to talk about a potential quarterfinal surprise as well. That's a more traditional dark horse. Your player outside the top 25 who we think can make some noise. And then I asked David to come up with two unseeded players as well who he thinks we'll be discussing throughout the course of Roland Garros. But before we get into that dark horse conversation, let's just start with the headline from Rome quickly. And I know we'll, we're, we're going to explore this more when we talk about our top contenders. I just want to get your take here so we can put the quick button on Rome. Novak Djokovic, down the home stretch, obviously earns his 1,000th win of his career, just the fifth man to do that. But down the home stretch, 5-6 and six over FAA, 4-3 and three over Casper Ruud, 0-6 oh over Stefano Tsitsipas. No other way to frame it, David. Is Novak Djokovic back? Yeah, I think I told you last podcast that there were only very few permutations of results that would make me think that Djokovic comes into Roland Garros in a better position than Carlos Alcaraz. And as Djokovic has somehow been able to do many times in the last two years, he threaded that needle almost perfectly, just a dominant uh, performance over Tsitsipas in the final, who, lest we forget, Tsitsipas was dangerously close to preventing the almost calendar year Grand Slam in Paris last year, leading by two sets and getting very close to being up two sets in a break, I believe, in the third set of that final. And just the fact that Djokovic did not even make it close, he's back in form. He's fit, he's confident, he's healthy, and he has the most experience of between him and Alcaraz, and he's healthier right now than Nadal. So I think there is an argument to be made now that he is the number one favorite, over even over Alcaraz. Yeah, I mean, look, 38th Masters title extends his record uh, amongst the rest of the field. And to your point, just physically, his ability to hit that on the run forehand, it's back. It just his ability to change directions with that ball. And whether it was in the final when Tsitsipas would go heavy cross court and Djokovic would just on the run sort of flick it, you know, elevate it over the net down the line to the Tsitsipas one-handed backhand, buy himself time to get the point back at neutral. I also think ever since last season and ever since that, you know, 2020 French Open semifinal where Nadal or final, excuse me, where it was just a beatdown for Nadal. I mean, Nadal worked them in that 2020 French Open final. Ever since that match, Djokovic has been more ferocious with his plus one forehand on the clay courts. He's been more aggressive pursuing plus one opportunities and just, you know, I think that improvement combined or not improvement, but that that focus combined with his reinvigorated movement and just again physically he's a different player than he was three weeks ago he looks comfortable sliding into shots move looks comfortable changing directions getting in and out of corners playing you know his plus one ball from a footwork perspective just much more precise on everything Again, I'll talk about how strongly I feel about him later on this week when we have Gilbert Gross uh, back on the show once again to discuss our top men's Gilbert. But he looked exceptional. That, like, that would uh, I, I agree with you. That that was the takeaway. Is this is the week you're waiting for if you're a Novak Djokovic fan and you got it here in Rome just in the nick of time now? I don't. I thought again. 
Well, here we go. We can get into it. What is a dark horse this year as we look at this 2022 French Open field? Because certainly Carlos Alcaraz wins himself a Masters 1000 event. And right now, according to Tennis Abstract, he's your number one player in overall ELO this season. And you look for Alcaraz to beat Djokovic, beat Nadal, beat Zverev consecutively on his way to that Madrid Masters title. About as ideal of a pathway as you can ask for for the now 19-year-old number six player in the world. Of course, has he ever been to a Grand Slam semifinal? No, but I think all of us agree that physically, after he rolls his ankle uh, against uh, Djokovic in that second set for him to— or was it against Djokovic or Nadal? Nadal, Nadal. excuse me, against Nadal in that second set You know, for him to come back and play the next two matches the way he did. I don't think any of us have any questions about him physically three out of five— so I guess it's a two-part – well, it's. we'll just start here. What constitutes a dark horse for you this season, David? Is it anyone not named Djokovic or Nadal? Is it anyone not named Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz? How do you define dark horse entering this 2022 French Open? I think in an ideal world, you would create a top five that includes Djokovic, Alcaraz, Nadal, Tsitsipas, Zverev, in that order as your top five contenders. At the same time, I do think those first three of Alcaraz, Djokovic, and Nadal occupy a rarefied air that's just above Tsitsipas and Zverev. That if We, we call that tier one here at Crack yeah. Rackets, as you know. If Tsitsipas or Zverev had managed to push either of their opponents more meaningfully in the finals of their Madrid and Rome against Alcaraz and Djokovic respectively, I think maybe you'd want to have that conversation, especially, I think I would be even more amenable to have that conversation in regards to Tsitsipas, just because again, he is a French open runner up and was quite close to winning that slam against Djokovic. But at the same time, I do think that Tsitsipas and Zverev are just a step behind those three and maybe two or three steps behind realistically, just based on the way Djokovic and Adal have, you know, their resume speak for themselves and the momentum of, of Alcaraz speaks for itself in, in a way that we haven't seen certainly compared to anyone outside of the big three in a very, very long time. So, but so they really do occupy this weird no man's land where they're not quite top contenders, but it would be strange to consider themselves dark horses because again, this is, you know, since we're talking about the Monte Carlo champion and uh, Rome runner up and in Zverev, we're talking about a Madrid finalist who's made the French Open semifinal last year, pushed it to five sets. So I think these are, these are certainly players who, if they won Roland Garros, you wouldn't say, wow, that's a complete shock. But at the same time, given the space between them and your Djokovic, Alcaraz, Nadal, it would be surprising. So it's it's hard to really categorize them. But well, I guess it's our job to try, isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm happy you went there because I did wanted to ask ask you where you would frame those two in particular, because I do think that is where the pejorative dark horse conversation begins is fundamentally a dark horse means they are surprising you if they win the 2022 French Open. Would we be surprised if Alex Virov wins the 2022 French Open? The answer to that question is yes. But it's not because he hasn't shown the tennis early or prior to this hypothetical title run that is below the standard expected of a Grand Slam champion. We've seen Alex Virov play Grand Slam winning tennis before. We've never seen it in the biggest stages in a fifth set when he needs it most in a Grand Slam final, maybe serving for the match, say, against Dominic Team in that 2020 uh, U.S. Open final or last year in the fifth set against Stefano Tsitsipas in the French Open semifinals. But I I don't think it would be a fundamental surprise if— uh, or, 
while we would be surprised, we wouldn't be shocked, I suppose, if Alex Virov somehow finds his way in the winner's circle. If it's Stefano Tsitsipas, I would say same thing. We saw him make the French Open final last year. He was up two sets to love on Novak Djokovic. Had his opportunity to capture his first Grand Slam title. Now, he wasn't able to do that. But he has put himself in those sorts of positions. And again, you look for Stefano Tsitsipas throughout the course of this season uh, here on the clay court, able to win the title in Monte Carlo. A fantastic three-set match that he falls against Carlos Alcaraz with in Barcelona. Madrid semifinals, three-set loss to Zverev that he then gets revenge for, beating him in the Roman semifinals here this past week. I mentioned the numbers the last time we spoke for Stefano Tsitsipas on clay, what he's done in this you know, pandemic era of the ATP Tour, which of course is referring to since August of 2020 for Stefano Tsitsipas during that time on clay courts. He's been you know, exceptional, 46-11 and 11 overall, winning 81% of his matches against top 10 opponents during this stretch of time. He's 7-6 and six, you know, on the clay courts, and he's beaten Zverev, he's beaten Rublev, he's beaten Berrettini, Medvedev, he's He's beaten everyone but Djokovic and Nadal. Obviously, if he were to beat one of them, particularly, you know, uh, at, at at a Paris, that would be a otherwise unmatched signature victory for him in his career. That said, that's the only ca- feather he's missing in his cap. He's done everything else. And that's why I think fundamentally you cannot include those two in the dark horse conversation because they have – and same thing to Zverev – to use that analogy, they've got a lot of feathers in their cap. It's just that one signature one that's missing. And I think when you're when you're just one short, you're not a dark horse anymore. Fair enough. And also jokes on all of you because we talked about them anyway. So whether we, yeah. we're going to continue talking about them or not. Yeah, exactly. By the way, <laughs> we had the just, conversation. I like that we poo-pooed my conversation with Gilbert. Um, but no, I mean, we'll get into the nuances of those top three and what way we order them again later on this week. All right. Those were, again, that's, I I agree with you. I think those are your clear-cut top five, whatever order you have them in, that's a separate conversation. Let's look beyond them. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Two top 20 players who can win this 2022 French Open. Now, it's really hard to look beyond this top five. I'll let you, you know, I'm going to open things up with you. I think I can guess where you're going but I want to hear you make the case. Who do you have first in your two? Give me one of your players you're looking at most closely. I mean, I think when you look at the top 20, I mean, it's it's a, it's totally an opposite conversation to what we were having. And it's what, what I was, the point I was trying to make about Daria Kasaki, you know, where when you look at the top 20, top 25 women's players, most of them are, you can reasonably say they have a real shot of winning a Grand Slam title. But when you look at the top 10 in the men's, or rather the top 20 in the men's game, it's harder to predict Grand Slam glory for anyone outside of that top nine, because right now number 10 is Matteo Berrettini. He will not be at Roland Garros. But I think I'm going to start with where I think everybody would assume I'm going, and that would be with my boy Casper Ruud, who is fresh off of a um, semifinal run in Rome. You know, coming in just under the wire, finding his clay court form, 
oddly enough, by playing hard court tennis. He's been playing much more aggressively in Rome and it has been paying off in spades, getting some really phenomenal match wins um, over Denis Shapovalov in the quarterfinals and over getting the avenge, uh, getting a grudge match win over Bodek von earlier in the week. And that was really where that turning point came, where he just felt like he was standing too far back to return. He moves in, he breaks Bodek quite a few more times over the second and third sets and, and gets over the finish line. It really does seem to tick over in his mind what he can do on clay. And I think it's that he, he cured the hard court hangover. Those players who break through on clay have to then play the rest of the year on hard court and, and adapt their game accordingly. And then have to come back on clay and deal with the mental strain of being back on a surface that they know they can play well on, but are have, having to deal with a game that they, don't know how to play anymore because it's just, it's, it's been such a difference of, um, of surface of, of tactics and finding that actually if it ain't broke, don't fix it rather than trying to radically revamp your game back to what you, what you consider to be clay court tennis, he's playing hardcore tennis and doing pretty well. And I think for him, the difference is, can he finally break through at a major tournament? It felt like if he had been in Australia, maybe he would have gotten that quarterfinal monkey off his back, but unfortunately he wasn't in Australia. He's going to have to do it in Paris. And it really is one of those big inflection point moments in his career. Can he make it deep at a major? You would think this is his best chance of the year because clay does seem to still be his favorite surface, even if he's been playing better on hashtag hard courts. But um, yeah, I think the Rome, the Rome result was really quite instructive as to whether I think he can do some damage in Paris. Had he not done what he did in Rome, I wouldn't be talking about him at all, but he did. So I can <laughs> 27 and 18 overall in his career in grand slams. That includes qualifying results. But again, just the one round of 16 coming back at the 2021 Australian open where, you know, he was down two sets to love before being forced to retire against Andre Rublev. The track record's just not there at the Grand Slam level. That said, you look for him in Masters events, 42 and 26 overall in his career. You want to lock in again in this pandemic era, which is really where I still look. And not too much longer will we be able to say that, but still this 18-month stretch, 30 and 14 in Masters level events during this stretch of time. And you look for most recently, again, Rome semifinals, Miami finals, you know, uh, Paris quarterfinals, Canada quarterfinals, Cincinnati quarterfinals, Madrid semifinals last year. He has been very consistent at the level just before that, you know, the, the highest level outside of the Grand Slams uh, in the buildup to this Grand Slam, and to your point, he had a lot of momentum on his side before, unfortunately, having to bow out of this year's Australian Open. Now, the draw will be interesting for Kasparud. You look for him right now, currently number 10 in the live rankings. I assume we're going to see Berrettini right now at the French Open. He's not out officially yet, I, I don't believe. Is he, David? You can fact-check me as I look. I don't believe he is out at the moment. Um, certainly looks like we're going to have Daniil Medvedev back in the field as well. Again, where does that put Kasper Ruud in the draw? That is going to be a fascinating question. If he has a Rublev potential round of 16 match or an FAA potential round of 16 match, obviously if he draws one of those top five seeds early, they're all highlight sort of matches. I mean, fundamentally, you're right, though. Obviously, what he was able to do on the clay courts last season, just that, you know, during that Olympic stretch where he goes and wins Bastad, Gstad, and Kitzbühel and just does so in dominant fashion and... You know, again, for him to come into this French Open with a Rome semifinal, build his confidence back, even if it wasn't the... Although I thought Shapovalov played really well in that quarterfinal match. 
I mean, it, it's the safe pick. Like, I, I don't mean it's not the sexy one, but it's. It, I think it's the pick that has to be made. Oh, I think it's a sexy pick. But I have oh. to say, and I think the reason why it is is because of the lack of um, resume at Grand Slams. I'm very hard on Alexander Zverev because he has not proven what he need, what I feel he needs to prove in best of five. But conversely, I feel the same, or rather, not conversely, apropoly, I feel the same way about Casper Rudy. I would be much harder on him, or much, I would be going even harder on Rudy. I would even p- perhaps have him among the list of contenders had it not been for the lack of a Grand Slam resume and the fact that he really crashed and burned through Monte Carlo and Madrid and Munich. I mean, I, I really thought he was going to run the table on clay, especially after coming off of the high of making the Miami final. But like, this is his opportunity to gain a lot of points or certainly defend a lot of points. And he wasn't able to do it. And Rome was really one of those make or break weeks for him. And he manages to come through to your point, played a really phenomenal match. Shapovalov played some great tennis, some really close um, games on serve. Uh, Shapovalov isn't able to get the job done ultimately and Rude gets over the finish line. And I think that was a pretty, pretty instructive one because I think that if he hadn't done it, I wouldn't, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't be bringing him up at all. So the better segue for me would be to go off of that and say, well, the Canadians are my pick. And I do want to get to the Canadians momentarily because they are my pick, but they're not pick number one for me. Where I have to start is with the Sin Man, Yannick Sinner, who is the JV feather in the cap version of where Zverev and Tsitsipas are. Yannick Sinner this season, 24-6 and six overall on the year. Who are the six losses? Tsitsipas, Hercots, Zverev, FAA, Tsitsipas. There's also a loss to Sarundalo, but he pulls out of that match in Miami again. So the five losses where they played the match from start to finish. Tsitsipas, Hercots, Zverev, FAA, Tsitsipas again. He is beating everyone else. Like, if you are not amongst the, if you are not a top 10 player, if you are not amongst the elite, you cannot hang with Yannick Sinner. There's too much pace. He's too relentless. He's too foundationally solid. And he's too mentally tough. He's just going to wear you down. He's never going to beat himself. Another one of those, you may say he's a little bit rigid and it can be a little bit one speed, although he can beat you in different ways, opening up angles for himself, just hitting the ball line drive through you. Look for him this season, holding serve 82.7% of the time. That's a career high for him from a a hold percentage perspective and is finally now solidly inside the top 25 from a hold percentage perspective. Again, Yannick Sinner has continued to improve. Now, his break percentage, 26.9, slightly lower than he was last season, but still above his career average. He continues to get better at just, you know all of the little things. Again, first serve percentage, 61.5%. That's a career high. First serve win percentage, 74.2%. That's a career high for him as well. He just... Hasn't been able to beat the Zverevs. Hasn't been able to beat the Tsitsipasas. Those tier one, you know, or sniffing on the precipice of tier one sort of guys. That said, you know, we've seen Yannick Sinner in a Roland Garros quarterfinal before. And I don't worry about him physically three out of five sets. He finally does seem healthy. Hopefully seems healthy, I should say, coming into this French Open I mean, do I worry about him five sets against the best of the best? Yes, that's when I begin to worry a bit more about the physicality. But but every day, he's another day older. You know, Do you know who's going to be spending this week in the gym getting ready physically and doing all the little necessary things to prepare properly for a, a two-week Grand Slam event? It's Yannick Sinner who— Not me. 
Yeah, well, you know, no, that's not true. False, people. He's lying to you. Don't let, first of all, don't let David lie to you. The text I received from him prior to us recording today, I just got off the bike, so I don't believe you for a second. You had a fitness session earlier this morning. David, don't lie to me. Um, but isn't this the classic case of the young guy makes the leap? Like, we're all ready for the Alcaraz leap. There could be a mini Sinner leap that just gets overlooked because of it. I could see Sinner in the semifinals of this event. He's definitely a dark horse. I think he is probably, in fact, the quintessential dark horse exactly. the, where there's absolutely no question around whether he is or not. But my question to you is, is Yannick Sinner mentally tough? Because I feel like what we do know is that he has a lot of potential, but he's somebody who is still not beating a top five player as well as he's played in a lot of these matches. He's not made it over the finish line. And even some of the physical reasons for why he's retired, I mean, none of them are really like, so- God forbid really serious injuries where he hasn't been able to play for weeks or things that maybe somebody else, maybe that's an experiencing, maybe somebody else would have been able to find a way to finish those matches because he's coming back the next week and he's fine. It feels a little as a like peak Victoria as where she was. I think he's the Federer where he's, and not to say like the same sort of player or, you know, all of these different things. I just think he's the, that is what he's, he's saying. Yannick Sitter is the next Roger. Federer. Yeah, exactly. Lock it in. Not Put it on a the, t-shirt. First of all, not out of the goat race yet. Yannick. No, Sitter. We he's had not, he's not, before, but <laughs> He's the front runner. He's the guy who, when he has you down, he's going to kill you. And obviously, you want to make allegories, comparisons to the big three and any next generation because they were at the pinnacle of what's possible in the sport. I know that's a tough thing to ask for Yannick Sinner. Again, I, I would scale it more appropriately, but that's the quality, the transcendent quality, I would say, that Yannick Sinner has is once he's got you down, he's going to keep you know, bullying you and bullying you and bullying you and just, again, going to continue to apply that pressure. I don't think he's not mentally tough. I just think he's a little one-speed reliant. You know, he's not going to be sliding six feet behind the baseline playing this extraordinary defensive tennis. He's always going to be at his best when he's the aggressor, when he's the one inside the baseline moving forward. Now, that said, I think he gets better physically on the slide. Like, I do think he has become more fluid, and I think... It can get – I just – I like the way he hits the backhand, how dynamic he is on the backhand. I think it's a strength thing. I think give him two more years to fill out his body. Not everyone can put on 10 pounds of muscle in a month like Carlos Alcaraz can. Mm -hmm. I like the way Sinner projects moving forward. I just think it's taking – you know, again, when Tsitsipas turned 23, now all of a sudden he had the strength in his legs where it was just a new ball game for him. I think that's going to be the thing for Sinner. We're like, just give him another year or two in the gym. But foundationally, I still feel as sold about him as any as anything. And again, every day that passes is another day closer to those, okay, he's had the two years to work on his strength. I mean, well, unfortunately, the French Open is next week and he doesn't have a year to prepare for. But yeah, I, but I do- these kids nowadays, two cliff bars and a good squat <laughs> session and like all of a sudden they've got just these quads. And so it's just ridiculous. I have a WTA comp for you, though. Is Yannick Sinner, ATP, and Nisimova? Oh. See, now some we're in, in my ballgame. Some injury issues, some no, little mental hiccups no, against top because, players. No, because Anisimova fluctuates more. Like, the floor of Yannick Sinner, what's a bad Yannick Sinner match? Like, there are no bad Yannick Sinner matches. It's actually sure. interesting. Like, the Anisimova ceiling is too high for that to be the comparison. Perhaps, yeah. Is it Bedosa? Is that the better comp here? I would say I still think Bedosa has between her Indian Wells win between her the way she yeah she the has season, more I think. she definitely yeah. has a little bit more right now that's fair uh, <laughs> is it Radakanu? 
Oh, no, don't be mean. Yeah, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Yeah, I'm just, no, it's Clara Tossin. Tossin yeah. just, is just a Talk little Talk about younger. someone who we have who's like totally I, faded from the conversation the last month and a half. Who, it's like Clara who? Should we <laughs> add her to the list of the Demon Hour Hatchinov Tossin podcast? Like we'll throw those three together. That's like the perfect – Honestly, that's the week after Wimbledon pod where everyone's like, I need a break. And it's like, okay, we've got the break for you. Uh, that's the break. Actually, we have everybody vulnerable. On this mini break podcast feed. But with that in mind, I mean, Sinner is the quintessential. Any other top 20 players? Because I like, okay, again, he is the first dark horse where if he won this Grand Slam, it would absolutely shock me. But I wouldn't. I'd be like, okay, it. Like he saw the Alcaraz hype and said, guys, I'm just as good as this kid. And that would probably be my reaction is now the Sinner-Alcaraz rivalry is the thing to watch in tennis moving forward. And God willing, we'll get a matchup between those two, three out of five, like quarterfinals of this tournament. Ideally, what we'd have is, (laughs) see, what I want, David, would be generational battles in the quarterfinals. So give me Djokovic-Nadal quarterfinal because I don't need to, I mean, I get it. That's the best match in the final. But give me that as a quarterfinal. Give me Zverev Tsitsipas as a quarterfinal. Give me Sinner Alcaraz as a quarterfinal. I'd want those two on the same side as the as the Tsitsipas-Zverev final. And then I don't care who goes in those last two slots. That's where our dark horse conversation is. Give me something funky there. And, you know, again, those are two top 20 players who I think would be the two most likely bets. I call Rublev a litmus test player as well. Like, he just feels like, all right, are you a top 10 player? If you beat Andre Rublev, yes. If you don't beat Andre Rublev, no. Can Andre Rublev win this tournament? Can, like, a Berrettini, you know, again, this is where probably the edge of this conversation ends, right? Is there anyone else who belongs in? A Felix has played really well of late. Anyone else you'd throw in there? First of all, Berrettini is definitely out. If you read oh. tennis.com, you would know that. But okay, anyway, sorry. I do have a top 20 dark horse, but it is a little stupid. Good. I am talking, of course, about world number two, Daniel Medvedev, who... <sighs> Bouncing off of our listener, Will, who asked me what I thought of his chances to win the French Open or perform well at the French Open. I think he's another one of those weird players where, yes, he's the number two player in the world, but we haven't seen him play a match on clay all season. Okay. He's notoriously someone who hates clay, but he is someone, he's one of the few men, and he's done this more than Sitsipas or Sverev combined. He has won seven matches at a slam, and he came very close to winning the Australian Open this year. And I think just like last year, he comes into the French Open with notoriously low expectations of himself. Mm-hmm. Last year, it was mental because he'd lost all those matches in the warmups and he just hated clay, hated the surface, manages to make the quarterfinals and has a pretty good performance against Sitsipas in the last eight there. Comes in this this uh, week physically as fresh as he's going to be because he skipped the entire clay court season. He's only got to play this one clay court tournament. He's already been to number one. He's got nothing to prove. You know, he might be someone who bullshits his way into this final. And then once he's in the final, who knows? So I think he's someone who, unlike, again, Sitsipas and Zverev, has proven himself that he's capable of winning a Grand Slam title. He's got nothing more to prove. I think he might surprise. I mean, I think if he won the French Open, it would be a genuine shock. I think a lot of people would be really shocked, certainly more than if Sitsipas or Zverev won it. I mean, that's a good pick. That is a fun dark horse. Made the quarterfinals last year before getting knocked out by Tsitsipas. Lost that match in straight sets, but just physically is a nightmare three out of five and can serve his way to enough service games to just make you uncomfortable. Puts a million returns in play. Now, again, how match tough is he? We'll find out uh, certainly early on in the tournament, but he still will be your number two seed. And so, uh, yeah, I suppose just by proxy has himself a shot and 
you know, again, there's a world where Alcaraz, you know, is in the Tsitsipas quarter or, uh, Zvir, you know, and Rude is in the Zverev quarter and Medvedev finds himself with like a Nori or a Hercats or something like that in his section where now he's in the semifinals and Alcaraz is coming off a five-set match against whomever or Rafa is coming off of a five-set match against whomever and life just becomes that much more interesting for him. So that's a good pick. I'll say this. If we get Rome Dennis, who is patient and swinging through the ball so confidently, I mean, he's still – put Shapovalov in the Demon Hour Hatchinov podcast as well because I just still don't know what to make with him. His point-to-point variance is just still – the delta is so large, and it's so frustrating because this is a kid with all of the tools. You can't teach a contact point that sounds or looks as beautiful as that Shapovalov backhand. And the strength he shows, even when the ball gets up on his one-handed backhand, he is one of the freakazoid athletes who can swing through that ball, no problem. And just again, his slider out wide as a lefty on the ad side. Oh my God, does it make sense. How explosive his first step is, how fluid he is. He's a special athlete. Like, he is top tier. And yet you just don't know what you're going to get out of him. And I do feel like projecting forward, three out of five sets should be his best format because physically he can just reach a level no one else can. I mean, if we get good Dennis, why can't he make a semifinal, do another? Like, I don't think he is inhibited from doing that on clay. I mean, he's got to play in France, first of all, which is something he's not done in quite a few years. I don't know why. I'm not suggesting anything, but it is strange that he's not played in the country in quite a, quite a long time. But anyway, to your point, I have a very clear talk about Karen Hatchinov. I have a very clear memory of that quarterfinal at Wimbledon. And you really do watching Dennis in a vacuum. You get seduced by that power. It's just phenomenal. The, the, the acceleration that he's able to get off both wings is just you, you look at it and you say, how can this man not win? a major title. And I think there's obviously a lot going on between the ears that prevents that from happening, but I think he is edging closer. I mean, he got that really good win over Zverev in Australia, played a really great match against Nadal there as well. You know, he's in the, it's, he's a very, why not me kind of player. I think that he's, if he's feeling confidence and he's coming off of a solid win, a solid match rather against Kasparud, could have been a win. Maybe you flip one of those matches where they say, if you flip two or three points, Dennis would have won it. You know, so I think that he's certainly someone who can uh, cause some upsets. And again, in, in, in those late stages of a slam, he's the one that's going to take those risks. And I do think that risks get tend to be rewarded uh, to quote Allison risk. <laughs> well, so how old do you think Shapovalov is? boy 24 23 years old which is young at the same time you do think to yourself wait he's 23 now like how long ago was that match against nadal in canada like how how 2017 yeah exactly that was back in 2017 when he made that breakthrough run and beat delpo and beat nadal before getting knocked out by zverev in that canada semifinals. He has been around the block now. He has played, you know, over 10 grand slams in his career. And to his credit, he made a Wimbledon semifinal last season. That was a spectacular run for him and another feather in his cap. But it's the same questions that continue. And again, he's 23 now. Like, this is when the ascension towards the prime is supposed to begin. And... 
while while his ceiling has gotten better because just physically he's gotten stronger, the floor has not risen. That's been the problem for Denis Shapovalov. Is even as the the ceiling continues to rise, is there will just be the matches where he loses the thread and the backhand begins to spray. And so it is interesting. Higher upside to you, Felix or Shapo? Oh, that's mean. Um, <laughs> I mean, because they're both extraordinary talents. And longtime listeners of our podcast know I have my list. Players who I think are locks to win Grand Slams this decade. I have, obviously, Medvedev already did it. Zirev, Tsitsipas, Carlos, Sinner, and Felix are my six. I think all six of those guys end the decade with a Grand Slam. I don't have Dennis on that list. I think his yeah. ceiling can be as high as any of those players, but I have yet to see the floor be as high as any of them either. But from a ceiling perspective, I think Dennis belongs on that list unequivocally. Yeah, it's rough because, again, you watch him play, and when he's playing at his best, you believe. But then when he's telling the Rome crowd to shut the F up, then you feel like, ooh, this person's maybe not mentally built for the grind of a seven uh, match. Do you think though that would be a good, do you think he actually just did that as a clip for him to drop in one of his remixes and like the chorus where it just is him telling the crowd to shut the F up and it's just on repeat or something auto tuned an an interpolation for your pleasure. Um, Yeah. That's (laughs) going to be one of those, those intro outros, you know, how those those rap albums work. I know I'm not, I'm not quite as, as, as proficient in hip hop and rap as Dennis Shapovalov is, unfortunately, but I will say that, yeah, it's, I think you still have to go for Felix because Felix certainly, Mm why is he going to win a slam? Because he looks like he's going to win a slam. Like there's just, he's just the, the, the prototype, you know, yeah. and, 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 and three those- straight quarterfinals for him entering this French Open answered a yeah. lot of questions on clay. He also just physically continues to develop and looks more comfortable sliding out of that backhand corner. And the thing I always am amazed at Felix is still just 21. Like, come on now. We, yeah. we got time with young Felix, who still is on that last year of in the goat discussion before officially eliminated. If he does not capture a slam this season, he would be a shock. I do think, though. From a power perspective, both Canadians have to be on the dark horse list. Let's move beyond that, you know, beyond the players who we just think, okay, maybe they can win if everything breaks right their way. Let's look outside the top 25 and talk about a player who we think can make that second week run, push themselves towards a quarterfinal. It feels like we're all, you know, we are often do uh, for one of those players, even if that player ends up being an Alex Diemenauer, where it's like not totally unexpected. We had seen some things in the rise to the course of the event, but give me your quarterfinal surprise for this uh, for this French Open. Funny, I'm, I'm going to take a very similar tack to why I picked Medvedev, and I'm going to look. I didn't pick number 40, Holger Room, but instead I'm going to go <laughs> with world number 41, Alexander Bublik, who, lest we forget, is a men's doubles runner-up at the French Open. So one need not enjoy being on clay to win matches on. And I think he certainly rides that line and has maybe rode too far to the other side of I hate it so much that I just physically can't be on the surface anymore. But at the same time, he's got a win over Vavrinka in in Monte Carlo. And he wanted to play that down because Vavrinka was still injured or coming back from, from a long time out of the game. But at the same time, He's he's one of those t- raw raw talents who, if he can string together, you know, a good vein of form, he can he could bulldoze his way to the quarterfinals of any tournament. That that's surface is totally irrelevant for him, in my opinion. But um, it, he just has to find that groove where he's not he's he's channeling that laid back approach, but not getting so annoyed that he's even having to play clay that 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 it just causes him to boil over. But I think 
you know, he's certainly somewhat, didn't he make the third round last year? I, I remember he played, um, he played Medvedev. So he played, you know, he's able to win back-to-back matches. Got very, that's, that's as close as, as probably closer than he would like to say than uh, that he could get to the second week of a grand slam or rather the second week of Roland Garros. So I think that, um, yeah, I think I would love to pick Holger Rune, you know, winning, winning uh, the title in Munich, but I think physically still, I wonder how the body holds up best of five, having to win all those matches to make the quarterfinals. I think if you're, it would be maybe less surprising to see Rune or maybe more surprising to see Bublik. But I think with Bublik's raw talent, I think that you really can never count him out. So I think he's if he's in that right headspace, we can maybe see him in the last eight. That's quite the take. I mean, look, he can serve his way to anything. The problem is, and the problem is, will he be willing to do that for three sets? Like he has to have that degree of focus, not for two sets, but for three sets. It's that third tiebreaker, getting over that final hump on this surface because it is that, you know, you play one bad service game on a clay court, it's that much easier to make you pay. I mean, that's a great out, you know, so I have a list of guys. We can just go through it here as we go through the end. You tell me if you think they're interesting or not to talk about. Holger Rune, who's up to a new career high in the live rankings, the 18, excuse me, now 19-year-old up to number 47 in the live rankings, but I believe number 40 right now in the ATP rankings uh, coming into this week, has some points coming off of his resume, but obviously you look at what uh, Rune has been able to do throughout the course of this season, in particular on the on the clay courts here. Now you look at the big results for him, I believe, and I don't want to get this incorrect, but obviously beats Zverev uh, and makes it all the way to what was it the final where he wins the title uh, ultimately in I forget where that was somewhere in Germany but you know straight set victories for him over Ota, Rusevori, Zverev and Lechechka on his way to the title now you know loses a three set match in qualifying before uh, going into what was that Rome uh, I believe last week but you know for Runa to beat Karatsev in Monte Carlo the way he did and get a win over Cressy there as well and win a challenge challenger on the clay courts the week before a guy who's had a ton of success in clay court challenger events throughout the course of his career I mean is it too soon to say quarterfinal for Holger Runa again he is already a top uh you know number 40 right now in the ATP rankings and you look at his rise this season or his rise over the past 18 months I have it now in front of me he has made six different challenger finals five of them were on clay courts he won the title in all but one of the so four out of the five matches it just feels like again it's it's quarterfinal too soon for him and he's a former junior French Open champion as well Correct. so certainly clay one of his better surfaces I just think physically this is someone who has dealt with cramps in the last two Grand Slam tournaments, the U.S. Opening against Novak Djokovic and again in the first round in the Australian Open where he was up two sets to one, ends up losing in five sets. Just physically, it's a different ball game for him right now. You know, this could be a really, this could be a big turning point mo- moment and turning point major for him. You know, getting the uh, the mental uh, boost from winning his first ATP title, even if it didn't end up being in a retirement in the final, some really phenomenal matches to get there. Um he certainly, he certainly, you know, it's funny, if not for Alcaraz, he would be one of those, you know, hot take players at this point, those, those young guns, next, next gen stars, but because Alcaraz has really taken all the oxygen out of the room, it's, it, there's not enough room right now. So maybe, maybe being a little bit under the radar, feeling confident will help him kind of string some matches together. And maybe if he breaks that duck of getting through some slam matches without having any physical issues, maybe that'll kind of reset him mentally and physically. So it's, I don't know if I would be that shocked to see him in the fourth round, to be quite honest. Yeah, I would say that's the, he's the second tier of Dark Horse. We're like second week, I don't think it's surprising 
Do you want to do the Davidovich Fokina take? Obviously, quarterfinalist oh. last year. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little worried about him. <laughs> Can I just rapid fire guys to you now as we go through yes. this? I think yeah, that's what we're gonna do on the home show. So that. give me the Davidovich Fokina take. Ooh, I mean, I would like to think that he'll be able to at least make the second week again, just based on the fact that he's won a lot. Most of the matches that he probably should win, most of the matches that he's lost during this clay court swing have been to very good incredible opponents where you feel like he could get over the finish line, but just ends up losing these really tight matches where you feel like mentally it's a, it's a tough one for him. And he's often, he's often talked about being on high highs from big results and then having to deal with the lows after maybe this is him kind of going back up the mountain in Paris. So I, I would hope that he's able to back up his quarterfinal run because it would be a shame to kind of have nothing to show for it coming out of this clay season after as well as he did in Monte Carlo to then have to lose all those rolling arrows points and kind of have to start from scratch. Yeah, you know, well said. And, you know, again, for Davidovich Fokina, context being key, three-set loss to F.A. in Rome, three-set loss, 7-6 in the third to Hercot in Madrid, and, you know, three-set loss to Tiafo and Esterol. Three out of five is a different ball game, and I don't think anyone here doubts him physically. It's mentally. Can he get over that hump? I do think the three out of five format is going to be best for him. He's now seated in this yeah. event as well. I think it's I think it's second week or bust. Like if he loses in the third round, that is a disappointment. Now that would be holding seed, and certainly if he draws Rafa as his seed, like well then he got f- and there's nothing really you can do about that. But I I do think it's seed or bust. Uh, you know again it's I think it's second week or bust for him. I think that is how good he is on clay courts physically. I don't think there's any excuses. What about me, Amir? Where are you with him? I feel good. I feel, I don't feel as good as I maybe felt a few weeks ago, but I feel good about him making the fourth round or perhaps quarterfinals. I think maybe if he'd been able to maintain some of that hard court momentum on clay, maybe I would be looking at him as a potential surprise semifinalist, but I think that might be a bit of a bridge too far right now for Meow Meow. I feel like if he can make the fourth round quarterfinals, that's a solid uh, run for him and see what he can do for the rest of the season. I agree. Fourth round quarterfinals, I think similar to Davidovich Fokina. I mean, he's number 31 right now, so he will literally drop it. Let's say this. If it's third round Medvedev Kasmanovich, the sexy pick will be to pick Kasmanovich as the upset. And again, context being key, Clay court season. Who are his losses to? Djokovic in Belgrade. You're playing your hero in your home country. You've talked about that match before. Match against Munich. He's up a set and really should have won that match in straight sets against Botic. Loses in that semifinal. Loses to Rafa in Madrid. Very well could have won that second set. Extended that match. I would have liked to see that three out of five. And then a three-set loss, 7-6 in the third in Rome to Diego Schwartzman. That's not a bad loss. Like, Kasmanovic comes into this in good form. And that was his first first match loss for Kasmanovic in ages in that Rome first round. And so I kind of like me, Amir, to make at least, you know, again, I think if he's in the Medvedev section, you circle that as an upset. Yeah, I think, first of all, I never I never look at a best-of-three match and wish it was a five-setter ever. Second of <laughs> all, said. are the cops coming after you? Yeah, they got me. Cause they, they're, they're coming after me for that Bublik pick. I feel yeah. like it was, just, it, was, it was really illegal to, to predict that 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 much of Bublik <laughs> on the Kesmanovic play. beat in Madrid. That's what they heard. And they're like, but yeah, I, sound the same. <laughs> I think going back to, yeah, that Kesmanovic Medvedev hypothetical third round, I think that if Medvedev were to win that, even though I'm picking him to go all the way, perhaps as a dark horse, I think if he does end up beating Kesmanovic, that'll be a pretty big disappointing one for 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 Miramir because I feel like that was that's a pretty obvious one that he should be winning you know a, a, a higher ranked opponent but someone who is not with the who doesn't have the match toughness that should be one that he wins if he doesn't that's sort of a question mark where I feel like where are you in this conversation because you're you were on the ascendancy you kind of leveled out and maybe now are you kind of sloping back down again if you don't 
beat that kind of top eight C that maybe we're expecting you to beat. But that said, yeah, I think in most other parts of the draw, I think he, I think I could see him making the fourth round of the quarterfinals. All right. Sebastian Baez, 73-19 and 19 overall since the start of last season on clay, 19-6 and six against top 100 opponents, now 5-3 and three against top 50 opponents. But again, 19-6 and six against the top 100, and perhaps most importantly, players ranked outside the top 20, 72-17 and 17 against on clay courts over this stretch of time. Now, again, you combine those two numbers, the point being he should make the third round. He should make the fourth round. Now, he again, another guy, because he's number 37 in the world, 38 in the world right now, if he draws a top five seed and that's their second round opponent or first round opponent, boy, do you feel like yeah. you got screwed by the draw gods. But let's say he's that second round opponent for, sorry to go to you, a Karen Hatchnov or an Alex Diemenauer or like an Albert Ramos, who he has already beaten here this season. You're picking the unseated Baez, and it's not going to surprise me at all. Tennis Abstract, singles forecast will have him as the favorite. I bet DraftKings and Sportsbooks will have him as the favorite as well. Again, that record, 19-6 and against top 100 opponents on clay since the start of 2021. That's a guy, and, you know, for him last season was unable to play the French Open main draw. Like, this is the guy, this is a massive opportunity for him. It's not going to surprise me at all to see him make a second, third round push. Yeah, that's funny because we've had such little face time with Baez in these Grand Slams. I was thinking it's hard to picture where he fits into the mix, but the illustration of him up against Hatchinov is kind of perfect because you yeah. do really, you do feel like as the, the scores tick by and you're, if you're yeah. after it, a long day, and first week of a slam, you could totally see Baez defeats Hatchinov in four or five sets. And you think, hmm, that was a little weird. You would have thought Hatchinov would have figured out a way to win that one. But given what we know about Baez, enough of what we know about Baez, it actually, for tennis heads, real heads will know that was not quite the upset that maybe people were thinking it was. So yeah, I think certainly, yeah, I, he's probably more in that third, fourth round category where maybe others are fourth round quarterfinal. That yeah. makes sense. All right, let's keep rolling. Sebastian Corda. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm definitely high on. If, you, if we're having a conversation about Americans, I think he might be the one that I am most uh, invested in of that Corda. Tiafo, um, Fritz, Opelka, Brooksby. Yes. Seven yeah, Americans going to be seated, by the way. Yeah, I think he'll probably be the one to go the farthest because I think he is the most naturally comfortable on the surface. And he is the only one to beat Alcaraz in a really long time. So I think that that speaks for a lot if you're handicapping uh, players to make deep runs because he's someone who can say, I beat the best guy in the world right now on clay and I'm in Roland Garros and I made my breakthrough at a slam at the French Open in 2020. I think he's someone who is and, and has won his only title on clay in Parma last year. So he's certainly one who's comfortable on clay, maybe between him and Tommy Paul, but I think Tommy Paul is sort of me just picking with my heart. But I think with my head, I would I would go with Sebi Corda of, of all the American men for sure. Active players with Masters 1000 titles from non-European countries. There are three of them. Can you name them? Active, um, active non-European players who have won Masters? Yeah. So Fritz. Yes. Um, uh, non-European. <laughs> yeah. Technically, oh, like, Hatchnov, they're going to throw in Europe. We can have that debate a different time. Oh, because Hatchnov, he won, he won Paris once? Yes, and that's oh. my hint to you. I think barely counts. Um, <laughs> Who else barely counts and won Paris once? Oh, no. Did Del Potro win Paris once? He's not active, but no. Not active, right. Oh, God. Um you I, have really peaked. These... I really peaked with that Mal Washington yeah, trivia. You have, you have <laughs> these on your feet right now. 
Oh, Jack Sock. All oh, right, Jack Sock. He won Paris. Jack Sock, yeah. top eight player, semifinalist at the yeah. ATP finals. And Damn straight. Oh, the boy. other one, John Isner, of course, in Miami, whatever year, 18 All or right, 19, or whatever year that was. Oh, my Three God. Americans, your non-European masters winners Woo. right now that are active. That's a Joe Kelly stat, by the way, yeah, uh, for <laughs> all of you. But no, I mean, again – we're going to talk about the Americans separately. That's really the take I was looking for. You have Corda above the rest. Pedro Martinez. I, I just think physically the guy is a nightmare. Three out of five set. He won a title in that South American clay court stretch. He's currently ranked, I think, number, what, 42, I want to say, in the live rankings. 41 right now in the live rankings. That's a new career high. He's going to beat someone. I'm just telling you. Like, always pencil him into that third, fourth round in an event like this, barring him drawing a top eight seat in the first round. You know what? I think it's good and important to be honest about what we know and what we don't know. And I. You don't have a strong Pedro take? I could not have told you what Pedro Martinez looks like. I couldn't have told you how tall he was. And. He has not won any matches this clay court season other than one against Ugo Umber in Monte Carlo. So actually, I don't feel that stupid for not knowing about Pedro Martinez. No, South, in are you not, you're not counting South America? No, I'm not counting South America. Who, who am I? Yeah, that's fair. You're a veteran this week. <laughs> I'm looking are. I'm looking through a year. I mean, I know we just did a whole non-European Masters, Ben, but I think when we're looking at the previewing the French Open, I think we got to look at Europe as sort of the most uh, – instructive uh, as to who's going to really do well at the French Open. I think when you're losing to Herkaz, Ivashka, Demonauer, Sinner, meh, <laughs> more like Pedro Martinez. Watch him make the quarterfinals. Not like me. Like yeah, I feel idiot. pretty good about my Martinez take. Though I feel Those losses you mentioned, other than Ivashka, I don't feel bad about any of them. Um, Certainly wasn't watching any of those matches. Yeah, again. <laughs> I'm glad somebody was. You know who he looks like is Aaron Brodkey, who I played club tennis with, which means nothing to you, but it means something to people, <laughs> maybe someone who listens to this. You know who he looks like? Someone that only I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Aaron Brodkey's a 2013 MHSAA Division One number one doubles champion. I don't know. He did it the year after. Um, all right. Emil Rusevori. <sighs> He's definitely... He's probably another player that I have not watched a ton. Um, but he's Rusevori certainly a sinner who... with worse press and worse hips. Worse hips. Yeah. That's how... Yeah, but at the same time, if you're losing to Benoit Pair at a match. And a yeah, match that was bad kind of today. I didn't, I'm suspicious. That's, look, that's why Rusevori got pushed down the list. Musetti? I like I do like Musetti. I do like me some Musetti because he's one. Of, I feel like he's like a he's like a beta Shapovalov, just like someone who's got all that raw talent, but maybe physically, mentally not all the way there. But he's he could play some really some really quite um, eye catching tennis. Um, the Italians, man, it really hasn't been a great other than for Sinner. It hasn't really been that same um, contingent that we were kind of getting used to with Sinego, Musetti, Berrettini, they're all kind of falling by the wayside. But I think with Musetti, I think he's still got that raw talent and, you know, took two sets off of Djokovic at the French Open. I mean, I think you can't discount that. I think that's certainly someone who you are always going to look at, at least for the, maybe not always, but at least for the next year or so, because he is still quite young. I think he's probably, I think he's the youngest of a lot of these players, no? Yeah, no, it's good. Again, good inclusion, I would say. He has a ton of points to defend. <laughs> um Alejandro, pat, on the, pat on the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good good Alejandro, inclusion from you. No, I mean, it's more just like it depends where he falls in the draw. That That's the big thing. And I just do wonder, you know, he was playing so well at the start of the clay court season. It's fallen off a bit here. I just don't know how healthy he is. Like, that's really my question. Um, yeah, walk over to Alex Verov in the, yeah. the round of 16 in Madrid, and uh, did, but did get the win over Korda, Ivashka, hadn't came through college. That, that's my Shinoka. concern is just that walkover to your point. Yeah. 
Alejandro Tobilo? You can just say pass. All right, now, now you're just bullying me. Now pass. Yeah. <laughs> Munar? Ooh. Pass? You're going to have to cut this because I feel like I'm losing all of my ATP. Oh, leave it all in. It's fine. Oh, what no. about? Do you have a Jack Draper take yet? Do I have a Jack Draper take? I still feel like, you know, when you're getting a lot of enthusiastic tweets from your British contingent, I'm still a little suspicious, but I feel like he is. <laughs> There's something, there is something there. I don't know quite what, I mean, when he got that win over Senego a few weeks ago, I was thinking, well, that's, that's not nothing, but also senego has been playing some pretty lame ball. It's, As it's, a longtime it. leader of the still believe in Yuri Vesely bandwagon, lefties who can serve, I just like you. Like Finally, a name I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> talk to any tennis coach. I, I had this, you know, there's a guy named Johannes Monday, who I assume you know well from the University of Tennessee, of course, number two. And another player. another player just just up there. Yeah, but so Johannes Monday, lefty. You know, I'm joking around with, or I'm talking with all these college coaches. Who do you want on your team, et cetera? And it's always Johannes. You know, whenever Johannes Monday comes up, it's well, who? If you as a tennis coach said, hey. Do you want the 6-6 lefty? Like, isn't the answer always yes? You're just like, yes, I'll take the 6-6 lefty, please. And we'll worry about everything else later. Like, that's Jack Draper right now, where obviously he's killing it at the challenger level. But, like, give me the 6-6 lefty who has the weapons, and we'll teach him how to play tennis as we go. Um, And so, you know, again, that would be my list of names I'm just keeping eyes on to maybe beat someone or, you know, sniff around third round, fourth round action because French Open always gets funky early on. And so just keep an eye on that. But with all that said, I mean, yeah, any final dark horse thoughts here, David? Any final French Open men's things? You ready to give predictions yet or no? I don't know. I'm just looking through these ATP rankings and looking at names of people that you could have brought up. Maybe look less look maybe look less stupid. No, I'm even looking up higher in the rankings of like your RBAs, your PCBs. I mean, I think when you're looking at men's tennis, I think that the 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 cutoff for a dark horse is quite high. And I think once you're starting to look at players ranked between 50 and 80, and players who have made most of their ranking off the challengers, I feel like at that point, yeah. My I'm still not looking for them to make the quarterfinals. Of a yeah, but I'm not even talking quarters and a real. I'm just talking about, again, the names that are going to maybe beat an RBA or beat a Carreno Boost. I mean, Carreno Boost is like, just pencil him into round four. Like, Damn, what, you couldn't I, even brought up like Hugo Gaston. Like, at least I watched him. Yeah, I, I got nothing on Carino Busta left. Like, he's very Ooh. good. He's like, again, he's good. He's going to make the fourth round and then he'll probably lose. Like, Bautista, yeah. <laughs> he'll probably make the third round or lose. My thing is, like, if those guys lose, though, who's it going to be to? And it's one of the guys on my list. And that's what I'm trying to get everyone prepped for is like, who are those? You're doing the bracketology picks on. RIP Turnitopia and like you're making your picks and you're like, well, I want to be different and I want to be spicy. Those are the names. I'm telling you, Pedro Martinez over Bautista Goot, if they play, lock it in. Lock it in, David. And then on the next edition of the volley, I expect a name drop from you to say, and credit to Alex Gruskin, who said Pedro Martinez over RBA. I mean, Pedro Mar- I'm really looking forward to that ATP era where Pedro Martinez wins the French Open. No, That's what I'm looking for. You know like, what's going to suck, suck now other. is that he's going to lose first round. And in the group chat titled, I was right, you were wrong, I'm going to have to get the I was right message from you. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to trust yep. me. I will remember all of these names. And <laughs> I'll be checking for the first round results. And if they do not defeat, I don't know who in the first round, I'm going to be so mad. All I just <laughs> want I was- is one sizzly Jack Draper take from you after the French Open. Just like what one I- sizzle. 
reasonable. Um, or like, yeah, give me your two cents. No, no, no. You all, I'm giving you homework. Six points of Pedro Martinez. That's the assignment. Six points. I mean, I, I will say that I did have, I did have some, uh, I, at least I got some time when we, we had the, the original Sebastian Baez conversation where you just went on about him long enough that I was able to pull up the highlights, watch it, <laughs> watch him win that final against TFO. And then I was able to have an opinion by the time it got back to me. And yeah. I was able to say, that's a pretty good pop on that on those ground on that ground game. No, that I just Sebastian watched. Baez, it, it's gonna for it sucks because he's short and Argentinian, so they'll ever be like it's Schwartzman, but it's like yeah. it's not Schwartzman. It's not and potentially you know, better Schwartzman, and, I, and that's someone who loves Schwartzman. To yeah, and, say that. Ooh, see, hold on. Potentially, because Re- rewind it all. Cut. Yeah, that's. Oh, should I go that's place what, that in the bias take of the podcast, and we'll move that in earlier? talking about someone who's a bit younger, someone who's got a bit more yeah. pop on his ground game. I mean, there's an argument to be made, but I will say the one dark horse we didn't bring up is someone who, provided he doesn't get Stefano Tsitsipas, Grigor Dimitrov has played a really good on clay this year. Yeah. He got really close uh, to beating Steph in Rome at that 7-6 in the third. Was really close in the semifinals of Monte Carlo, narrowly loses to Davidovich Fokina. Someone who's, you know, one of those those sentimental picks. I feel like maybe he's someone who maybe people know about. Maybe everyone else who's listening, maybe the other 1,000 or so people listening to this podcast know these names that you're bringing up. But I will at least say someone who everyone should know, Grigor Dimitrov. I'm picking him to make the well, look, here at, And I'm picking him to beat Pedro Martinez in the second round. That's what I'm picking. Well, at Cracked Records, we know it's our job to keep our fans the most well-educated, best-informed fans in the business. So no name is left off of the role of Dax. Dimitrov's a good pick, though. I do like that as a dark horse. Just someone to keep in mind. Yeah, I hope we get the Martinez. Martinez-Dimitrov matchup because that will be extraordinary. But again, we're going to talk about it all here as we break it all down every angle of this 2022 French Open. We've now talked men's dark horses. We'll talk women's dark horses, contenders on the men's and women's side. We'll look at the Americans as well as we know it's our job here to prepare all of you listeners, all of you tennis fans for the 2022 French Open. Of course, you know where else they're doing that? With our friends at Tennis.com. With that in mind, David, I know new edition of The Volley is out today, but what else do you got coming? for us well i am off today and tomorrow so yes. not a ton <laughs> but i will say that i have got some some stuff still in the hopper that once i once i let it once i let it rip i'll be able to share it with you guys but yeah it's um really looking forward to getting some some time to rest relax and get ready for what's going to be quite an intense three weeks it feels like mm-hmm. of tennis with that sunday start really is a bit of a killer but yeah i'm looking forward to lo- watching a lot of players play for the first time and and uh, seeing what i think of them for sure and maybe i'll have some some puff pieces for for pedro martinez when all said and done it's all i ever ask for and yeah i mean over under four points of the college tennis national championship how many will you watch under <laughs> <laughs> what was the last college tennis match you watched does world uh, team tennis count? Under. <laughs> yeah, the under is the answer. All right, I like that. But again, everyone knows they can find you, DKTNNS, on Twitter, and of course, read you at tennis.com. And a thank you to you, as always, for taking the time to help us recap Rome and kick off our series here. Again, busy week at Cracked Rackets, NCAA tournament quarterfinals onwards starting this Thursday. We'll preview it all over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, we talked to all the coaches that reached the NCAA round of 16 last week on our Cracked Interviews podcast. You missed any of them. You can check them all out now. I believe a lot of those still hold up. I mean, again, I think we spoke with all 16 quarterfinalists, eight men's, eight women's coaches. So go check those podcasts out over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. All that content available on the website, CrackedRackets.com. 
Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on any of our coverage. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for my fantastic co-host, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell the people? And that's the break of Pedro Martinez's serve. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. See ya. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 